All right, family, up on your feet one more time if you're able to. And as we prepare to preach this morning, we'll take a moment here to remind ourselves of the, the story that we are a part of, the faith of the church that has been carried on for 2,000 years and that we have been brought into. Let's declare our faith together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You can be seated. The Everyday Prophets is the series that we just started last week. They are the 12 so-called minor prophets. We know about the major prophets, the big guys, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, men like that whose words echo down through history. The minor prophets maybe we know a little bit less about. I joked last week that maybe the uh, pages of your Bible stick together a little bit when uh, at the minor prophets, but um, you know their names, Hosea, Joel, Amos, there it is, Jonah, yeah, Micah, Habakkuk. Now we're getting a little murky in here, right? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I think we were all just speaking in tongues there for a second. Anybody want to get up and offer an interpretation? Do we have any interpreters in the house? The 12 minor prophets, they're powerful though, man. Their words are powerful. And the number 12 is actually very symbolic, as I said last week. 12 tribes of Israel tasked to carry the life of God. In the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament that are commissioned with the gospel. And the church, the scripture says, is built on the foundation of the apostles. And the prophets with Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And I just, as I've been reading through the minor prophets, it seems incredibly symbolically significant to me that there are 12. To me, the minor prophets feel a little bit like the apostles before the apostles. They have this incredibly urgent message and as you start reading them, one of the things that you see is that their, message, their messages really do constitute one message. It's wound together in very, very deep ways. They're threaded together in very important ways. So Hosea starts out the message of the minor prophets by calling wayward, unfaithful Israel to return to the Lord. He says this in Hosea 14 and verse 1, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God, your sins have been your downfall. So it's this call. In fact, if there was a major theme to the minor prophets, it would be return. The Hebrew is shuv. Can you say shuv? Shuv is in the New Testament. It's repentance. It's repent. It's turning around and coming back to God. And Hosea ends his book by saying that to wayward Israel. Return to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Verse 8, I am like a flourishing juniper tree, the Lord says, and your fruitfulness comes from me. So what happens when the people of God return to the Lord? They become fruitful again. And that is what happens when we turn back to God, is that we're realigning ourselves with the very source of life, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And to the extent that we do that, our lives become fruitful. Now, Hosea didn't talk much about the conditions in which 
that repentance, that return would happen, which is why we have the book of Joel. What Joel is going to do is Joel is going to pick up the baton that's passed to him from Hosea, and he's going to carry it and expand that message by talking about the unique ways in which Yahweh gets our attention and calls us to return to him. I'm going to be in Joel chapter 1 and kind of give a little overview of the book, but before we get into the text of Scripture, let's pray. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift his soul up to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. This morning, we ask that you would give us clean hands and a pure heart again. The scripture says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus, the bridegroom, cleanses the bride by washing her with water through the word. We ask that the words of Scripture would be the instrument by which the great heavenly bridegroom washes his bride. Make us spotless this morning. Make us without wrinkle. Make us without blemish one more time in your sights. We pray, and the preacher is pleading with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Petuel. Hear this, you elders. He's talking to the leaders in the community here. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children... Tell it to their children. So now we've got grandkids. And their children to the next generation, great-grandkids. For what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, Joel says, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation... Now he begins to unpack this even more. Has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness, and it's laid waste my vines. It's ruined the fig trees. It's stripped off their bark. It's thrown it away, leaving the branches white. Mourn, Joel says, like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. And yet not a very encouraging message here from Joel, but Joel is telling the truth about something that was happening in Israel. We think that Joel prophesied sometime after the return of the people of God from exile, cities been rebuilt, things are not quite fully booted up again, but all of a sudden... This plague happens inside of Israel. It's a locust plague. And we don't know a lot about locusts in our day here in the United States, but it's still a huge problem in the world. Millions and millions and millions, billions of locusts will pass through areas and ravage them and do exactly what Joel said. It will wipe life out completely. It'll strip the forest bare. It will eat the bark off of trees. And when that happens, life comes to a screeching Halt. Now, I know that none of us can relate to any kind of a global type situation that brings life to a screeching halt, but just try <laughs> to use your imagination here. Here is this calamity that has fallen upon the people of God, and it's so much like so much is it the case that it's bringing life to a screeching halt that Joel actually says that. Uh, that the temple, the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of God. It literally has caused the gears of society to come to an end. And in the middle of this, Joel 
instead of just sort of sitting on the surface of reality and going, hey, this terrible thing has happened. You know, we need to consult the epidemiologists and government workers and all that stuff to try to fit. What Joel does is Joel presses beneath the surface of the calamity to begin to discern the voice of God. And as you watch Joel chapter 1 unfold, what he does is instead of running around saying, hey, we've got to do all this pragmatic stuff to try to mitigate the disaster here. Instead, what Joel does is he says, hey, I've got a good idea, guys. What we ought to do is we ought to get together and fast and pray and weep and mourn and wail and lift our voices once again into the ears of the only one who's ever been able to help us. Uh, to that extent, what Joel is doing, obviously, is something that's very biblical. And it appears that when you read Joel, that the people began to respond to this, that folks started getting together and they started turning their attention. They started doing what Hosea said to do, to return to the Lord. They begin to do this. And while they're in this place of weeping and mourning and wailing and fasting and lifting up their voices to God, something happens to Joel. Look down at chapter 2 and verse 1. Joel says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes now, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. And before them a fire devours, and behind them a flame blazes, before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, and behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of, what does the text say? So whose army is this army that Joel is imagining? It winds up being God's army. Now, this kind of goes against some of the things that we learned in Sunday school. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Right? I'm in the Lord's army. Right? And we're the ones that are like marching out and doing all this stuff. Well, in this case, God is inhabiting this very difficult circumstance, and he's actually making it part of his army to do something to the people of God. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So watch here what Joel is doing. The people of God have just been in the midst of this calamity, this plague that swept through, ravaged the nation, stripped it bare. And while they're in this place of weeping and mourning and wailing about what had just happened, calling out to God for help, Joel begins to perceive in that first calamity a greater calamity yet to come. In fact, he uses that when you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 side by side, one of the things that you see is that in chapter 1, he describes the locust plague much like an army. And then in Joel chapter 2, he describes the army that he sees coming in the future much like what? A locust plague. He's reading those two things against each other. And so while they're in this space of turning to God, lifting up their voices to God, Joel looks into the future and he sees this much greater calamity to God uh, to, to come. And what do you suppose... He says to the people of God, it's time to weep and mourn and wail. Like, let's turn up the dial on our returning to the Lord. Look back down at the text. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with what? With all your heart. See, the Lord knows, and Joel knows through the Lord, that our repentance really can just be a sham, can't it? Surface level stuff that we just do to get God off our backs and to return life back to some semblance of normal. Oh, Lord, please, this is so uncomfortable. You know, most most for God, I confess that I've sinned against you. Just leave me alone. No, right? But that's not the kind of repentance that pleases God, is it? You know, God's intention is that our repentance would cut right down to the innermost parts of who we are. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your heart and not just your garments. Return to the Lord, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. And who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So here is what Joel knows. That if the people will humble themselves before the Lord, 
return to God with all of their hearts, rending their hearts, not just their garments, the Lord will not only avert the impending, the impending disaster, but God will also pour out the kind of blessing that's consistent with the blessings of the covenant. The people will flourish again in repentance as they enact their repentance through this difficult thing. Are you tracking with me this morning? Joel, to the extent that he does this for us, he's teaching us a critical spiritual art form, okay? And I call it an art form for a very deliberate reason. It takes practice to be able to do this thing well. And this is what that thing is. The critical spiritual art form that Joel is teaching us is the art of discerning the voice of God in difficulty. It's the art of discerning the voice of God in difficulty. Is God responsible for the locust plague or not responsible for the locust plague? Is he responsible for the army or not responsible for the army? How do we parse that out? How do we discern that? How do we understand what God is doing in the midst of difficult things? And it seems to me that there are two equal but opposite errors you can fall into when you think about the relationship of God to difficult things. Error number one, ditch number one, is that you might say that God has nothing to do with difficulty of any kind. So what is God responsible for on planet Earth? God is only responsible for the good and the nice and the wonderful stuff, okay? God is only responsible for my body working the way that it should. God is only responsible for me having enough money in my bank account and more than enough money in my bank account. God is only responsible for my family working the way that it ought, my marriage working the way that it ought, our nation working the way that it ought, the church working the way that it ought. That's what God does. So that when you see those things happening, you go, that's God. And then anything else that happens in life that doesn't quite rise to the surface, that rise to the level of that, that stuff is not God. Somebody else is responsible for that, okay? The devil's responsible for that. Sinful people are responsible for that. So God does the nice stuff, all right? Body's working right, prosperity, all that stuff. God does that. But then all this other stuff, war, plague, pestilence, famine, my body not working the way that it ought, you know, not having enough, all that stuff. Somebody else is responsible for those things. And they're a great, well, I'll just say this. There's a, a sense in which that is the start of a right understanding of life, Okay. The, the scripture says, James, Jesus' half-brother, says that every good and perfect gift, what? That's right. From the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every time we encounter anything that's good and noble and right and excellent and praiseworthy, who should we give praise to for those things? It's the beginning of a right relationship with God is that we attribute those things to God. But... If you're not careful in dicing life up that way, what you'll do is you'll actually exclude God from the vast majority of life. Because I don't know if you've recognized it by now, but most of life is really difficult. I need somebody to bear witness with me. Man, it just is. Nobody can adequately prepare you for how difficult it is just to be a human being. You know what I mean? And if you've lived for more than 11 seconds, you know this. It's challenging. Relationships are challenging. Living in a human body with a human mind is challenging. Having in-laws is challenging. You know, having a job is challenging. It's all challenging. So unless we can articulate the presence of God in the hard things, we'll never really be able to articulate the presence of God fully at all, will we? So error number one. But error number two, I think, would be, or ditch number two, would be to say that God is the cause of all of the difficulties. In other words, not only does God do all of the good and nice and wonderful stuff in life, but God is also directly responsible for war and plague and pestilence and famine and in-laws. Am I right? <laughs> God just directly responds. And I don't think that that is right either. The scripture's way of understanding the relationship between these things, God and the difficult things, is much more nuanced than that. I think of a paradigmatic example from the Old Testament is the example of Joseph. You know the story. Youngest of 12 brothers, 
sees visions and dreams, dreams that he's going to be exalted among all of his brothers, above his family, that he's going to rule them in some capacity. And when they hear this story, they're all quite mad at him, aren't they? So his brothers sell him off into slavery and they tell his dad that he's dead. And it's this whole horrible thing happens to Joseph. And Joseph, sold into slavery, winds up getting sold to He's sold into Egypt, and he winds up in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's one of the governors in Egypt, right? And Potiphar's wife has eyes for Joseph, and Joseph resists her advances. He does righteously, and what happens to him? Yeah, he winds up in jail, and then he helps out the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker in jail, and they don't remember the kindness. You know the whole story, right? And years and years pass, and the Lord lifts Joseph up out of his dungeon, appoints him to be the prince over Egypt, staves off a great calamity, famine had ravaged everything. Joseph winds up being used to help all of these people. And his brothers, he's reunited with his brothers after many years. And they're terrified at the thought that Joseph in his anger might exact retribution on them for what they did to him. And do you remember what Joseph says to his brothers? He says, am I in the place of God? You intended to what? You intended to harm me. So there was evil tucked into this, wasn't there? Evil human wills bent out of proportion by the evil and malign designs of the enemy of our souls. You intended to harm me. But then he completes the sentence, doesn't he? But but God is the whole gospel, guys. It's the whole gospel. You intended to harm me, but what? God intended it. For good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So was there evil involved? Was God the direct cause of his brothers selling him into slavery? But what did God do? He recruits this evil circumstance into his divine plan, not only to make Joseph into the man that he dreamed that Joseph would be, but also to save a whole bunch of people. This is more like what the situation is like with our God. That he operates through all of these circumstances, these difficult things. He recruits them into his purposes to accomplish the doing of his will and the bringing of his kingdom on earth, just like it's done in heaven. Think about another great example from the Old Testament. You might remember King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the good guys, okay? The whole string of bad kings in Israel and Judah. Hezekiah is one of the good ones. And Isaiah comes to him, the prophet Isaiah comes to him one day and says, uh, Hezekiah, i got a message for you from the Lord. Hey, what is Hezekiah thinking, you know? Um, the Lord is going to bless me and make me prosperous and all that stuff. And Isaiah says to him, this is the message from the Lord. Put your house in order because today you're going to die. You're not going to recover. Notice that the Lord doesn't say, I am going to kill you. But the Lord is showing him what is about to come. Okay? There's a huge difference between those things, by the way. The Lord is peeling back the veil of reality for a second and saying, there's a calamity headed your way, Hezekiah. Put your house in order. It's a mercy to Hezekiah. Get your affairs in order. Today you're going to die. You will not recover. And Hezekiah is so stricken with grief at the thought that this might be the end of his life that you know what Hezekiah does? He falls on his face before the Lord. Oh, Lord, he says, remember how I've walked before you with wholehearted devotion and I've done what is good in your eyes. Like, just remember these things. Lord, remember your mercy and your love. Remember how I, from the earliest days of my life I've given myself to you and how, remember how all of those times when I was tempted to worship other gods, and they were pulling me in different directions. I didn't do it, but I stayed committed to you. And you know what the Lord does? He responds to Hezekiah's humility by granting him 15 more years of life. Think about this in terms of the book of Joel. Did God say that he would kill Hezekiah? No. What did he say? This thing is about to happen to you. Hear my voice inside of it. And Hezekiah is so moved by this. It does something in him that is deeply spiritually wholesome. Hezekiah lifts his voice to the Lord and he says this in Isaiah chapter 38. What can I say? He has spoken to me. He himself has done this. 
And I will walk humbly all of my years because of this anguish of my soul. Lord, by such things people live, and my spirit finds life in them too. For you restored me to health, and you let me live. Surely it was for my, what? For my benefit that I suffered such anguish. For in your love, you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. What Hezekiah understands is that the Lord was reaching out to him through the calamity to try to do something in Hezekiah's life that maybe would not have been done otherwise. It was for my benefit that I walked through this thing. Hezekiah discerned the voice of God in the difficult thing. And it made him better as a result. Hebrews 12, verse 7, the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, I love this verse. It says it so beautifully. Endure. Now, what difficult things, pray tell, are excluded from the word hardship? No difficult things. (laughs) I love this. Because you know what it does? It allows us to claim all of life, all the difficult things in life as the arena in which God is reaching out to us. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons and daughters. That somehow in the difficult thing, God is reaching out to you. Endure hardship as discipline. God is reaching out to you. So the question is not... Are we going to walk through difficult things in life? If you came in this morning wrestling with that question, I'm not sure, you know, let me just put it to rest for you. Life is going to be hard. There will be uh, wonderful things, I promise you. Wonderful things will happen to you. Lots of good things. There will be breakthrough and there will be amazing opportunities and you're going to experience goodness and truth and moments of ecstasy and transcendence and Wonder, great and wonderful things will happen to you and terrible things will happen. And we have it on the Savior's own words, don't we? In this world you will have, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There will be difficult things in this life. The question is not, will we go through difficult things? The question is, will we hear and respond to the voice of God in the difficult things Will we let God use the difficult things to make us holy? And by the way, if all we had in life was a life of wonderful things and we weren't holy, we would be miserable. Only the holy are happy. (laughs) Jesus said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Suppose everything just worked out in life wonderfully for you and you were corrupting your soul, you would not enjoy any of it. But those that have been made holy can stand in the midst of all kinds of difficult circumstances and they're not shaken by them. So it turns out that the best thing that God can do for us in the middle of all of our difficult circumstances is not first to remove them, but to transform us inside of them. Can I get some amens this morning? I need to know that I'm preaching to somebody. We will go through difficulty But will we let God use it to make us holy? I was thinking about this week while I was preparing this message. I was thinking about the uh, first couple years that Mandy and I were married. Difficult things. (laughs) And she would bear witness. She would say, I'll tell you all about the difficult thing. His name is Andrew Arndt. (laughs) It's just difficult, you know. We're going on 21 years, those first couple years. You know, I was 19, she was 20. That is a difficulty in and of itself, your immaturity, you know, and we just had it in spades. But there were other things that made it really difficult. Mandy's father passed away a week before I proposed to her, which was six months before we got married. So there was the grief of that to deal with, living in a new city, new circumstance, all the difficulty and the challenge of that. We were in a church that was in a bit of a tailspin, moral failure in the leadership, spinning out, influencing relationships. Difficulty, 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 difficulty. It would have already been difficult as a 19 and 20-year-old married, but all these other things made it excessively difficult. And I just remember, I remember my response in my spirit during that season. And the response was basically, make it stop, God. 
and show me what I can do to make it stop. You know what I mean? And so everything, the whole bent of my spirituality during that season was, it was all about getting God to end the difficulty for me, which meant that in my mind, it meant that God would change everything out here, right? Say, so God, fix our church and fix the friendships and fix all these people. And also, my dear sweet bride, you know, I love her with my whole heart. But there are things, Lord, that if she would just stop doing this, maybe start to, it would make things, you know, a little bit better. When we are <laughs> in the middle of a space where God really needs to reach out to us, one of the things that we will always do is we will always externalize. We'll always make it about everybody else. And so in my faith during that season, I'm pointing the fingers at everybody else. I'm pointing the fingers at the church. I'm pointing fingers at relationships. Pointing fingers at my school and my circumstance and my job and my wife and all of that. That went on for a couple years. And I remember, I don't know exactly how Mandy would tell the story, but my version of this story, at least what felt like the turning point to me, was I remember the moment in prayer when I'm yet again bringing all the laundry list of things into the presence of God. God, this, 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 this. Fix all this stuff, right? And I just remember being out of steam on all that. It felt like God wasn't answering any of those prayers. And suddenly it occurred to me, maybe the most important thing that could happen in this season is not that God changes all of that stuff out there, but that God changes, yeah, that he changes me. And I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm done fighting you in this. I don't know what's going on out there and all of my efforts to change everything. It's not changing anything. So this is what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to humble myself before you and I am going to, like, I, I, I have no idea how to fix things, but I do know that I made a vow to that woman, which means that I made a vow to you. For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. So, Lord, what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow Jesus, and then I'm going to leave all the other stuff out there to you. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that in your life, but something tilts when you get to that moment. That was the moment when grace started flowing in. And all of a sudden, I'm inside my life now, not as one who's in this kind of antagonistic, like, you all have to stop behaving that way. But I'm inside of my life now as one who's been submitted to the Lord with an awareness that God is fully capable of managing the world that he has created. <laughs> that's what God intends to have happen in our lives. That we'd come to the place where we realize that we're not in charge of things and we were never meant to be in charge of things. It's too big of a burden to be in charge of things and that he is perfectly capable of handling everything, baby. He's got the whole world in his hands, the whole wide world in his hands. Will we let God use the circumstances to drive us to repentance, to get us humbled? And I don't know if you have noticed, but for the last year, we have been in a difficult circumstance. All right? Global pandemic. That was hard. And it continues to be hard. And if that wasn't hard enough, add into that, about a third of the way through the year last year, the brutal murders, several African Americans in our country that sparked angry race riots, all the chaos of all of that. So now we've got the pandemic and we've got all of the rioting and the chaos and people fighting with each other. And that all would have been very difficult to deal with by itself. But then it just so happened that last year was an election year. Oh, crap. <laughs> Not nice church language, but you know, sometimes you just got to be honest. We got to deal with this now, right? So we got all of that, and that exacerbates the situation. It becomes a pressure cooker, you know? And then those three things would have been enough, the pandemic and the rioting and the election. election. But then are you kidding me? The election results were contested? And now we're standing here in the middle of January, and it's still like an ongoing issue for us? God have mercy on us. And I have answered over and over again over the last year the question of like, is God doing this to us? You know, like was COVID-19, like is this like a judgment at the hands of the Almighty and the rioting in our streets? Is that a judgment at the hands of the Almighty? Is God inflicting this upon us? And all this stuff that's going on in our country now, is this 
coming directly from the hand of the Almighty and all the stuff that we saw a couple weeks ago at our nation's capital. Is that coming from the hand of the Almighty? And my answer to that question over and over and over again is, I don't have the faintest clue. I mean, I'm honored that you had asked that question of me, but I don't have a seat at the inscrutable council of the will of God. I don't know. But this is what I do know. I do know that what the enemy intends for harm, God always, not sometimes, always intends for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. And so when I see across the church over the past year, people in the midst of the difficult thing falling to their knees in worship, I go, God is getting what God wants there. And when I see the church beginning to raise its voice in intercession and prayer, I go, God is getting what God wants there. And when I see people beginning to fast and pray again in a way that they had not before, I go, God is getting what God wants there. And when I see generosity, like Pastor Colin talked about, emerging from the house of God to reach our community and to reach the nations where we're running into calamity with the help of God, I go, oh, God is getting what God wants there. This is what God intends, that the difficult things that we find ourselves clothed in, that it would lead us to a place of repentance, that it would actually make us holy. And just by the same token, if and when we do not do that, if and when we don't take the angst that we feel about the difficult things and offer them up into the presence of God, do you know where all of that angst and that energy goes? It goes out and it becomes toxic and dangerous and violent. Pain that is not transformed, do you know what, it ha what happens to it? It gets transmitted. It goes out. And all of the anger and all of the hatred and all of the vitriol the rioting, the social calamity that we're standing in the midst of right now. Do you know what all of that is all about? It is about the fact that in the midst of the difficult things, we're not turning our hearts to God. We're not repenting. So what we're doing is we're taking all of that stuff and now we're blaming and we're pointing the finger. Oh, you know who's responsible for this? That country over there is responsible for this thing that we're in the middle of. You know who's responsible for this? The Democrats are responsible for it. The Republicans are responsible for it. The Tea Party is responsible for it. Black Lives Matter is responsible for it. You're responsible for it. No, you're responsible for it. Finger pointing and blaming all of a sudden begin to devour us. When what the prophet says to us is not, hey, this bad thing is happening, figure out who's to blame. The prophet says to us, this bad thing is happening, so find your way to your knees. Weep, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, as James says. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, what he'll do is he'll bring not the curses of the covenant, but the blessings of the covenant upon you in a way that you don't have room to contain. Pain that's not transformed is transmitted in repentance. When we come into the house of God, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, in repentance, we metabolize the pain that's caused by our difficult circumstances in a way that is spiritually wholesome. That's why we come here. That's why we come. That life has kicked us in the teeth. Life has ravaged us and laid waste to the things that we hold dear. We feel mistreated by other people and we feel even at times mistreated by God. So where do we take all of that angst? Into the presence of God. This is why we don't just turn our worship into this happy, clappy, pretend everything is okay kind of deal. Because God intends that all of life would be lived in his presence. So what we do then is we take our anger and we take our pain and we take our frustration and we bring it into the presence of God. And we say, God, what do you say over this? How are you speaking into this? How do you want to transform this. Think about the miracle of our worship. Think about the fact that, like where else in the world, just ponder this for a moment, where else in the world 
do people get together on a regular basis to say, you are in the right, O God, and I am in the wrong. Most merciful God, we confess that the Democrats have sinned against you and thought word and... No, 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 no. Most merciful God, we confess that the Republicans have sinned against you and thought... No, 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 no. Most merciful God, we confess we have sinned against you. Thought, word, deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're real sorry about that, oh God. And we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may finally delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Think about the miracle that that is. That in a world that is consuming itself with self-righteousness, everybody thinks they're in the right and everybody else is in the wrong. There is a group of people on planet Earth that are disavowing their self-righteousness stripping it off in the presence of God and saying the problems that are going on in the world, Lord, I'm responsible for that in ways that I can't even fathom, but I take responsibility for it in your presence. And I'm asking that you'd cleanse me and renew me and make a new creation out of me and fill me with your spirit and send me back out in the world with blessing. Think about the miracle of that. That's what happens when we come into the house of God for worship. And this is the promise of God when we do that. Joel chapter two. And afterward, after you've come into the house of God and repented, after you've allowed yourself to be undone by the presence of God, after that happens, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, listen to that class distinction broken down in the presence of God, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Do you know that this was the text of the first Christian sermon that was ever preached? Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is poured out upon the church, breaking them, putting them to death, and making them alive in the presence of God. Peter understood that Joel's prophecy comes true in the church whenever they gather for worship. Pentecost happens and a brand new people are created who bear witness to the world of the kingdom that is yet to come. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? Let's stand to our feet. And now let us practice what we've just preached. Oh, Lord, our God, we're not making this this morning about anybody else. Brothers and sisters, we are standing, we are standing in a national moment that is fraught with all kinds of temptation to be something less than the people of God. So what we're doing right now is we're putting ourselves before the judgment and the salvation of God and asking him to make us new. And so Lord, together as your people, we make this our prayer of repentance. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the promise of the scriptures. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We are in Christ Jesus new creations. In him there is no condemnation. Our past is gone. All things have been made new. 
we have been renewed by the Spirit of God to be the people of God one more time in this house. If you can receive the good news of the gospel this morning, give God praise. Lift up your voices in thanksgiving to the Lord. And now let's sing this song as a response, and then Pastor Collins is going to lead us to the table. Lord, hear our cry. Come heal our land. Breathe life into these dry and thirsty souls. Lord, hear our Forgive our sins. And as we call on your name, would you make this a place for your glory to dwell? Open the blind eyes, unlock the deaf ears, come to your people as we draw near. Hear us from heaven, touch our generation. We are your people, crying out in desperation. Lord, hear our cry. Come heal our land. Hear our land, Lord. Breathe life into dry and thirsty souls. Sing, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive our sins that we've done. Forgive our sins. As we call on
you open these elements, just hold them in your hand. The bread in one hand and the cup in the other. Let's just proclaim the mystery of our faith together. That Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. God, we hold these elements in our hand with thankfulness. God, that, that we are forgiven. God, like we've been, we've been learning today, Lord, we come before you humbly. With soft and contrite spirits, Lord, thank you that you forgive us. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take the bread together? After supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you take the cup together? Let's respond in worship by singing the doxology together. So what the Lord has done in us again is he's reduced us to worship. Open your hands like this, family. As you go from this place, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and not only give you peace, but may he make you a living extension of the peace of God in the world. May he grant all of this and do all of this in you and through you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. It's so good to be with you on Sunday mornings. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we're going to hold this posture of worship for a little bit. We'd love to pray with you about anything. Those of you that joined us online, so grateful to have you with us. Go in God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace. We'll see you next Sunday.